0: So here's a little bit of useless trivia for you. The person who has made the most ever appearances on the TV show Dateline NBC is an LA police detective by the name of Jay Warner Wallace who specializes in cold case murder mysteries. Hopefully that'll help you win like Trivial Pursuit or like, you know, as you're out at a restaurant doing Trivia Night or something, maybe that'll come up. I I don't know. But the reason I share all that with you is simply this. In 1995, Jay Warner Wallace, or Jim is his real name, he went to Saddleback Church where I used to work uh, with, you know, Rick Warren. He goes to Saddleback. He's an atheist. And the only reason he's at Saddleback is because his wife had started attending there. And he's just trying to appease his wife. And so he's just sort of sitting there in the the worship service. But he said there was something Rick Warren said that he'll never, ever forget. Rick said Jesus was the smartest man who ever lived. And he just could not get that phrase out of his mind that Jesus is the smartest man who ever lived. So again, Jim Wallace, he, he goes out and he buys himself a Bible. He wants to see, is this Jesus guy really smart or not? And so he starts to read through the Gospels. Now, he was expecting that it was going to start out with once upon a time or, you know, it's going to be like Babe and the Blue Ox or something like that. But as he's reading through, he starts to see, well, wait a second, these Gospels actually are written almost like one of the eyewitness reports I would have for one of my cases. And he's like, if this is actually like supposed to be an eyewitness thing, I can take the same principles I use to solve cold case mysteries and prove that none of this is real. That way my wife stops attending her, uh, this church and, and just wasting her time. And so he took the 10 principles that detectives use to solve cold case mysteries, and he started to apply it to the Gospels. And what he found shocked him, because by the end of it, he actually becomes a Christian because he saw that the facts for Jesus' resurrection were right there. That there was facts. It wasn't just simply having faith in faith, a blind faith, but there are facts that back up why we believe what we believe. Now, Jay Warner Wallace, he's gone on, and he's written now like a bunch of books about this topic, including his best-selling book, which is called Cold Case Christianity. I would highly recommend that you pick up a copy. It's what we've based this whole series off of. But again, he shares in that book, the 10 principles of how they solve these cold cases. But then he also, he talks about the questions that they use for eyewitnesses. But there was one fascinating thing in the 10 principles that they use that I had heard of these things before, but I didn't know how they actually apply. So what I'm talking about is the two types of evidence that you can have in a case. One is called direct evidence. Take a wild guess what the other one is. If one is direct evidence, the other is Indirect evidence, very good. Now, you've probably heard indirect evidence by another term, and that other term is circumstantial evidence. How many of you have heard of circumstantial evidence before? Now, here's the deal. A lot of times with circumstantial evidence, people go, well, that isn't like the best type of evidence because like it's like a little piece here and a little piece there, and you got to like sort of put it all together and, and sort of create a picture. So that doesn't sort of count. But what he explains in the book, and again, I wasn't familiar with this, is simply this. Every type of evidence, except for an eyewitness, is circumstantial evidence. You're going, wait, even if they find the proverbial smoking gun at the scene? Circumstantial evidence. Well, what if it's like DNA that they find? Or or blood from like the victim or or the, the like murder suspect or whatever? still circumstantial evidence. Well, What if it's like a fingerprint or a footprint? Circumstantial evidence. Every single type of evidence other than eyewitness testimony is circumstantial evidence. And the reason I bring this up is many critics of Christianity say, well, you don't really have a case for the resurrection of Jesus because it's all circumstantial. Then, you know, you're taking a little bit here and a little bit there and a little bit here and a little bit there, and you're, you're trying to put it together to create this case for Jesus. But look, if we have to throw out the circumstantial evidence for Jesus' resurrection, then we wouldn't be able to try any criminal here in the United States because, again, every type of of evidence is circumstantial unless it's eyewitness testimony. And what we have with Scripture here, with the Gospels, is not only the circumstantial stuff, but we have eyewitness accounts of Jesus' resurrection as well. But I love what J. Warner Wallace says about this. He says, even when you have an eyewitness, you don't trust the eyewitness, you test the eyewitness. Let me say that again. Anytime you have eyewitness accounts, you don't trust the eyewitness, you test the eyewitness. In fact, there's four broad categories that detectives use to test eyewitnesses to see, you know, is this for real or not? And these same four sort of tests are the same tests that a judge instructs jurors when they get ready to go into deliberations. They say, look, here's the four things that you need to keep in consideration because you heard many eyewitnesses in this trial. Here's the four things you need to keep in mind to see if it's true or not. So what are those four questions? Well, let's look at them here together. Number one, were they truly present at the scene in order to see what they claim that they saw. That would make sense, right? Were they really there or not? Number two, can what they are saying be corroborated by any other form of evidence? So if the eyewitness says, yeah, I saw the the suspect, they were uh, wearing red gloves and they had a silver pistol and that's how they committed the murder. And then later on, a silver pistol with red gloves is found. That makes it more likely that they're telling the truth. It doesn't mean that they are telling the truth. But this corroborating evidence points that, well, perhaps they are telling the truth. Number three, have they been honest and accurate over time? So has their story remained consistent or not, or has it has it changed? Especially, you know, like with these cold cases that he talks about. Sometimes it's like five years later, ten years later, twenty years later, thirty years later. And what they do is they go and they interview everybody again, all the eyewitnesses and, and the potential suspects, and they want to see as the story stayed the same, or over a 30-year period, did it change? Question number four, are they free of biases or prejudices that might cause them to lie? So, if the eyewitness or potential eyewitness has like a grudge against the person, or they could gain personally in some way by incriminating this person, then you've got to say, well, there's some bias there, there's some prejudice. Now, it doesn't mean that they are lying, but it does have to be factored in. And so what we're going to do over the next couple weeks now as we continue this evidence series is we're actually going to take each one of those four questions and we're going to break it down and see can we like answer these questions when it comes to are the gospel writers actually telling the truth or not. So we'll start today with that very first question of were the gospel writers actually present in order to see what they say that they saw. You see, throughout the gospels and throughout the writings of the New Testament, we have people that either directly or indirectly are saying, I was there, I saw it, I was an eyewitness. Now, some of them only are inferring that they are eyewitnesses, but we have that in there that people are saying, look, I was there. And then we have some people like Luke that make it clear that I wasn't there. I wasn't an actual eyewitness, but I interviewed the people who are eyewitnesses. And I, I talked to them. I, I got their story. And that's what I'm writing to. But even in the case of, like, say, with Luke, you know, as you read through the the, uh, uh, the book of Acts, which Luke also wrote, about a third of the way through, Luke changes from saying they to using the word we, because that's the point where Luke actually starts to travel with the Apostle Paul. And so even though Luke's gospel in the beginning part of Acts, it's all him just saying, I'm not an eyewitness to this, but here's the stories, here's the things that I've been told and I investigated, I'm writing it down. The last two-thirds of Acts, he's actually a part of the story, so he was an eyewitness to all of those things. And so again, the question is, were these people eyewitnesses or not? Here's why this is all very, very important. I want you take a look at the timeline that's on the screen right now. You notice that the, the ministry of Jesus, we know it was from 30 to 33 A.D., three and a half years that he does public ministry. And as we talked about last week, and if you missed last week, you got to go back because we we really looked at, you know, how did we get the Bible and, and all that kind of stuff. You, you need to look at it because we didn't get the Bible as we know it today until 363 A.D. And it was there at the Council of Laodicea that all the letters that have been circulating around, again, we talked about that last week, there was letters circulating, you know, for hundreds of years, they're circulating around. And it was there at that council that they said, okay, we're able to compare and contrast all these. And here's the ones that are legitimate eyewitness testimony that we know because we've seen this sort of chain of command. And we'll talk about the chain of command in a couple weeks. But we've seen this chain of command of the Gospels getting presented all throughout. And so things like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all are like, yeah, these are the real things. But did you know that there was the Gospel of Peter, the Gospel of um, who else Thomas, the Gospel of Mary? All of those were rejected. That they were like, look, it's so obvious as we read these. These are only people that are claiming to be Peter, to be Thomas, to be Mary. These are not real eyewitness testimony. And so they, they do all that. They, they evaluate all these documents, all these letters that have been circulating around. And remember last week we talked about that these documents were in Africa, they were in Europe, they are all throughout Asia. And so they're able to see, you know, did the telephone game take place or not? And they know that it didn't. And then that's when they authorize the 27 books of what we call the New Testament. And they took those and they combined them together with the 39 books of the Jewish scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, to create the 66 books of what we call the Bible. Now again, here's why this is all very, very important. Famous atheists like Bart Ehrman, they all say that all of the Gospels were written very, very late on the timeline. So not only the Gospel of Thomas and Peter and Mary and some of the others, but they say even Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they are all written hundreds of years after by people just claiming to be Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that these weren't the real people at all. And they say that's why it needs to be discredited. And you know what? If they are right that they were written late, on the timeline, then we should discredit it because we're talking about if somebody really rises again from the dead, you want somebody that's an eyewitness to that, especially because of what we're staking as Christians in the resurrection of Jesus. That Jesus truly is God, that that Jesus has the power over sin, that he has the, the power to forgive us, that he and he alone is how we can have an eternal relationship with God, the father in heaven forever if we're staking all of our lives right here and right now and our eternal lives on it, we want eyewitnesses to be there. However, if the Gospels can be proven to be written early on the timeline, closer to the actual event of Jesus' supposed resurrection, then at least then we can say, okay, these were actually written by eyewitnesses. And that they can answer this first question of, were they truly present? in order to see what it is they say that they saw. Now, it doesn't mean that they're telling the truth, but it at least means that they were lying early, okay? And what you need to understand is it is tough to lie early. Be honest, those of you here, those of you watching online, have many ever told a lie before? The rest of you are liars, okay. Here's the deal about lying. If you have to cover your tracks like, in the hour that it happened, in the day that it happened, and you're telling those lies around other people that were there, they're able to say, No, 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 buddy. No, no, no. It didn't happen that way. You're not telling the truth. If you have to tell a story like, you know, 30 years later about something, it's much easier to lie then. Why? Because there's not as many people that are still around that can sort of correct you that you're not telling the truth. That's why fish get bigger and bigger and bigger as the years go on. And so, uh, again, when it comes to where the gospels written early, where they written late, if they're written late and it isn't actually eyewitnesses, they can say whatever they want. And, and that's what most atheists will tell you. They say, well, we really believe that there was a guy named Jesus And we really believe that he was a great teacher of moral things. But we believe that as the years went on, nobody could correct it anymore. And so just legends started to get added to it. And none of it is true. But if we can show that the Gospel writers are actually Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they're writing early, then we can go, wait a second, why is it that there is no other writings from that day and time that would say that, no, none of this is true. Why, why don't we have anything like that? All right, with all that said, we'll we'll discuss that a little bit more here in a bit. But with all that said, can we make it a, a case for the early datings of the gospel? And the answer is, yes, we can. Let me start with an illustration. I want you to imagine for a second that you are... Uh, you're reading a book about domestic terrorism in the United States. It's a big book, domestic terrorism in the United States. And I want you to imagine for a second that as you read all the way, cover to cover in that book, not once does it mention 9-11. Just think about this logically. What would you conclude about that book? When was it written? Go ahead, say prior to 9-11, right? There is no way there's going to be a book about terrorism in the United States and they don't mention 9-11. And so you would have to say, okay, it was written prior then. Did you know that the nation of Israel had their own version of 9-11? You may not have known that. In 70 A.D., Titus, who was the, uh, the brother of the Roman emperor Domitian, he was a Roman general and he was told by his brother to go and to once and for all destroy the city of Jerusalem, including the temple. Now, what you need to understand is this had been going on for a couple years. Starting in 67 AD, there had been this war that Domitian had sent in his troops to try to destroy Jerusalem. The city of Jerusalem was very, very fortified. Big city walls. And for three years, they're able to hold off the armies of the Roman Empire. What the Romans eventually did is they starved the people to death. They just blockaded any new supplies getting into the city. And as time went on, people were just, they're dying of starvation, basically. And they're getting weaker and weaker and weaker. But other generals had tried to actually break through the walls and stuff. and, And finally, Domitian says to his brother Titus, he's like, look, I'm going to have you go do it. And sure enough, Titus is able to break through the walls. They burn the city, they kill most of the people, and they tear the temple to the ground. Now, if you know anything about Jewish history, you know what value the people placed on the temple. The temple was where the presence of God dwelt. The, the temple is where they would come to offer up their sacrifices for their sins. The, the temple was the place that they celebrated their feasts and their festivals. This is huge for them, culturally. I mean, it's just a part of their lifestyle, this, this temple. Even if you lived in other parts of Israel, you were still required to go to the temple once a year. So just this is just such a big deal that the temple has come down. It's now been made a pile of rubble. Now, it makes sense that that would be very emotional and a huge deal for the Jews, but guess who else it was a big deal for? It was also a very big deal for the Romans. You know how we know that? Take a look at the picture that's on your screen right now. This is called the Arch of Titus, and the inscription, and by the way, you could jump on a plane today, fly over to Rome, and you can visit this arch. So it's, it's still standing to this day. This is the Arch of Titus. The inscription on it is that it was erected in 81 AD. And inside, through both the words and the pictures, what it is celebrating is Titus' victory over the Jews, that they went in, that they destroyed Jerusalem, they destroyed the temple, and it talks about all the spoils of war that they took away. So not only is this a huge, huge deal for the Jews, this is a huge deal for the Romans as well. Now, a little quiz here for you. What is the book of the Bible in the New Testament? I'll give you a little hint there. What is the book of the Bible in the New Testament that follows up the four Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that sort of tells the story after Jesus' resurrection of the ascension, the start of the church, the spread of Christianity? Who knows what that's called? The book of? The book of Acts, right. Okay, next question is this. Where in the book of Acts does it talk about the destruction of the temple and Titus' victory over them? Where in the book of Acts does it talk about that? The answer is, it doesn't. In fact, none of the 27 books of the New Testament talk about this major, major event, an event that's so big that it would have just crushed morally and spiritually the Jewish people. And it was such a big event that the Romans actually erect a whole arch to commemorate it. It's not mentioned in the book of Acts. It's not mentioned in any of the 27 books of the New Testament. Here's another trivia question for you. At the end of Acts... Acts has 28 chapters. Is the apostle Paul alive or dead? Who knows? Anybody? The answer is he's still alive. He's under house arrest in Rome. Now, here's what we know. Paul, actually, actually, let me let me back up because I, I, I skipped something here. I want to make sure that we do here. The destruction of the temple. You would have thought that somebody would have mentioned that because Jesus actually predicted it. Let's look at Mark uh, chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. We read, as Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings, Jesus replied? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. So not only does Luke in the the book of Acts not mention the destruction, but nobody mentions the siege either. And again, at the end of the book of Acts, Paul is still alive under house arrest. Now here's what we know from writers outside of the Bible, other ancient writers. We know that Paul was beheaded by Nero in somewhere between 64 to 67 A.D., We know that Peter was martyred in 64 A.D., and we know that James, the brother of Jesus, was martyred in 61 A.D. Now, I want you to think about this, because last week we talked about how meticulous Luke was in the details of everything that he wrote. He would talk about times. He would talk about places and the, the people. I mean, at one point in the book of Acts, he's so meticulous, he actually says, here's the street that it happened on. So this guy is very, very detailed in his writings. But yet, he never writes about the 9-11 of Israel, nor the deaths of Peter, James, the brother of Jesus, or Paul, the three most influential men in Christianity. Even though in Acts he mentions the death of in the martyrdom of Stephen. And he talks about the death of James, the brother of John. His death. These lesser known men. So he doesn't mention the 9-11 of Israel. He doesn't mention the death of these three very influential early fathers of the church. So think about it logically. What does that mean? If he doesn't mention any of these things, that means that they have not what? They haven't yet happened. And so again, in 61 uh, AD is when we know that James, and again, this comes from outside of Christian literature. We know that James was martyred in 61 AD. And so that means at the very latest, Acts was written in 60 AD, just one year before the first missing event. Now there's arguments to be made that it was actually written before that, but we're going to put it at 60 AD here on our timeline. And keep in mind how Luke begins the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 2. He writes this. In my what? In my my first book to you, Theophilus, I wrote to you about all the things that Jesus began to do and teach all the way up to the day he was taken up to heaven after giving his disciples further instructions through the Holy Spirit. What was Luke's first letter to Theophilus called? We call it Luke. That's what we talked about last week. And so... If he says, look, this is my second book, Acts, which we've just placed on 60 AD on the timeline, that means that the Gospel of Luke had to be written before that, right? And so most theologians and most experts put the the, uh, Gospel of Luke having been written in 53 AD. So we're going to put that on your timeline. Luke is written in 53 AD. And the reason for that is we know the dating of some of the other writings of the New Testament. Let me give you a couple of examples here. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 and 18. Paul writes to Timothy and he says, Elders, or today we will call them pastors, Elders who do their work well should be respected and paid well, especially those who work hard at both preaching and teaching. And I said, Amen. <laughs> and then he says this, Then this is the part that, that's important. He says, for the scriptures say, quote, you must not muzzle an ox to keep it from eating as it treads out the grain, unquote. And then he says, and in another place, in other words, another scripture, he says, quote, those who work deserve their pay. So Paul is quoting two different verses here from scripture. He calls it scripture. The first one about not muzzling an ox, that comes from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 25. Where does the next part that he quotes, the next scripture, Where does that come from? Where in the Old Testament is that? Well, the answer is it isn't in the Old Testament. Luke there, or uh, uh, Paul here, is actually quoting Luke's gospel where Luke is saying Jesus was talking about, look, as people are out and about and they're traveling to share and to preach and to teach the Word of God, you shouldn't, uh, you know, not pay them. In fact, let's look at it. Luke chapter 10, verse 7. Jesus says, don't move around from home to home. Stay in one place, eating and drinking what they provide. Don't hesitate to accept hospitality because those who work deserve their pay. Paul quotes Luke word for word in this. And it's so fascinating that as Paul writes this to Timothy, he says, this is scripture. And he doesn't make an argument that uh, we should consider this as scripture. He just assumes that. Timothy already knows that this is Scripture. I mean, he just a matter-of-fact about it. In other words, by the time Timothy reads this, Luke's letter was already being accepted as Scripture. Remember, we don't yet have the Bible. We don't yet have the New Testament. But all these letters, as we talked about last week, they're all floating around. And some of them started to be accepted as the Word of God, as Scripture well before 363 A.D., when it all got compiled together. So we know that that writing took place um, in the early 60s, but we have another example of something similar that Paul does. And we find that uh, he, he writes this. It's to the, uh, the church that meets in the city of Corinth, and this can going to be anywhere from 53 to 57 A.D. And if you remember the church of Corinth, they are all kinds of messed up. They had all kinds of problems doing things that they shouldn't do, including in how they were doing communion. And so Paul's going to write to them and he's going to say, hey, remember what you've been taught about communion. You need to return back to that. You guys are messing this whole thing up. But return to the things which you were originally taught. So here's what he actually writes to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23-26. to 26, Paul writes, For I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it into pieces and he said, this is my body which is given for you. And then what's he say? What does Jesus say? Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after the supper, saying, this is the cup of the new covenant between God and his people an agreement confirmed with my blood. And again, Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you're announcing the Lord's death until he comes. Now, all four of the gospel writers talk about communion. But only one of them quotes Jesus as having said, do this in remembrance of me. Take a wild guess, which one was it? It's, yeah, it's Luke. Luke writes about this. Look at Luke chapter 22, verses 19 to 20. He, meaning Jesus, took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it into pieces and he gave it to his disciples saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After supper, he took another cup of wine and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant between God and his people an agreement confirmed with my blood which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. And so here we have Paul quoting Luke word for word and he's quoting it to a group of people the Corinthians saying hey don't forget to go back and do what you've previously been taught in other words they had already had the gospel of Luke floating around for quite a while they had already been taught this and now Paul's saying you've got to return back to what it is you already know to do how long had they been taught this again Most people put this uh, writing in 53 to 57 A.D. This is the writing of Paul to the, the church in Corinth. And so that means that if they're having to return to something they already had received, that means Luke has to be written before Paul writes this to the people in Corinth. And so that's why most people put it at 53 A.D. at the very latest. Because again, we know that Paul writes this to Corinth somewhere between 53 and 57 A.D. Let me remind you something else we looked at last week. Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. Remember how Luke starts his gospel? One word that has real historical uh, relevance. That word was what? Many, he says, many, 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 many people have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us. They used the eyewitness reports circulating amongst us from the early disciples. Therefore, having investigated everything from the beginning, I also have decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. So last week, we looked in these verses at the the importance of the word many. Today, I want to take just a little bit of time to talk to you about why does he say that I'm writing to you, Theophilus, an orderly account? Why does he just say, I'm writing to you an account? Why does he emphasize that word, I'm writing an orderly account? Well to understand that we actually have to go back and look at the writings of a first century bishop by the name of Papias. Now Papias he was a disciple of the apostle John. Remember we, we talk about this at, at Expedition all the time. We are to make disciples who make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. So Jesus made these 12 disciples, and then those disciples started to go out, and they were making disciples. So Papias, again, he is a disciple of the apostle John, and he writes about the gospels in his writings, about how these things have been handed down to us, these letters that are circulating around. And one of the things that Papias talks about, and this is so fascinating, Papias talks about how the gospel of Mark is not an eyewitness account of Mark's, However, what Mark is, is Mark actually giving the testimony of Peter. So he's talking about, because, and as you read through the Gospels, you see that Peter and Mark are always traveling together. And so Mark was like, man, all these stories that Peter tells, they're so fascinating. I'm going to write all these things down. And so that's how we get the the Gospel of Mark. (laughs) But as you now know that, as you read through Mark, it's really, really funny. Mark, because he's best friends with, with Peter, every time Peter does something where he screws up, Mark says, one of the disciples, <laughs> he covers for him. Or if he does mention Peter's name in a way that Peter messed up, he like really minimizes the whole thing. Anytime Peter does something really good, like Mark goes on and on and on about Peter and, and what he's doing. Here's one of the examples. In the Gospels, we read about Jesus walking on water, right? And remember what happens is Jesus says to Peter, you know, come on out. But what happens to Peter? Peter does what? He sinks. He walks a little bit, but then he loses faith and he sinks. Did you know in Mark, he talks about Jesus walking on water and he leaves out the entire rest of the story. It's really fascinating. And so Papias, he's writing about, okay, this is actually, you know, Mark telling Peter's story, and he says very, very clearly in his writings that Mark got all the stories right, but here was Papias' sort of criticism of Mark. He's like, one thing I didn't like is he didn't write a very orderly account. In other words, he got all the stories correct, he just didn't put them in their proper chronological order. See, Mark was writing it more from a a theological timeline of what's important to know, and he's sort of building along in the stories of Jesus so it sort of builds up then to the resurrection. Papias is like, man, I I wish there was this orderly uh, uh, account that would have gone on. So basically what we have is Luke comes along and he says, you know what? I am going to write an orderly account. Guess who Luke quotes? word for word, more than anybody else. He quotes Mark. Essentially, Luke's gospel is just a retelling of Mark's gospel, almost word for word many times, except what Luke does is he says, I investigated everything very, very carefully. Mark starts right with the ministry of Jesus, 30 A.D., but remember we looked at it last week Luke he's like no I, I investigate everything I'm going all the way back to the birth of Jesus I'm telling all of that and the stories leading up to his ministry and so Luke's going look I took all Mark's story I did my own investigation I'm adding some extra things in I, I'm telling that you know a it was actually Peter that did this and and so I'm adding all that kind of stuff in as well but what Luke writes to his friend Theophilus as he makes this emphasis of I am writing an orderly account. In other words, chronologically, I'm getting everything correct. And we know that for Luke to have quoted Mark so much, that means that Mark had to be written before Luke. So most experts put the writing of Mark somewhere between 45 to 50 AD. Now we're only talking one decade after the actual resurrection. Itself, so close to the event itself that it would be hard to lie since other people could write and say, no, 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 these guys are all telling lies. It's not the truth at all. What we're going to look at next week that's like really, really fascinating to me is that the other writings that we do have from that day and time that were critical of Christianity actually helped to corroborate Christianity unknowingly. These people are writing, giving us key details about the life and the ministry of Jesus and even key details about the resurrection itself. Again, they're trying to criticize Christianity, but yet they're unknowingly actually helping us to know that it's true. All right, so let's look again one more time here at our timeline. Critics of Christianity, the the skeptics, they say that all the gospels were written very, very late on the timeline. People just claiming to be Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they're like, it's just all lies and you shouldn't believe it. But I think that we've probably made the case today from the circumstantial evidence that the Gospels were written early on the timeline. Actually by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In other words, the Gospel writers appear in history right where we would expect them to appear if they truly were eyewitnesses. Now, let me be very, very clear. Just because they appear early on the timeline doesn't mean they're telling the truth. But at least we've answered this first question of, were they actually present or not? What we'll look in the the future weeks is establishing, okay, were they telling the truth or not, and and how would a cold case detective go about uh, determining that? But at least for now, We should see that, okay, the circumstantial evidence puts it early on the timeline, and so therefore, we should at least keep it in the running that these are reliable accounts. Again, next week, we're going to look at the corroborating evidence to see what is out there that helps to reinforce their testimony. I'll end today with a reminder of what we talked about last week. Christianity is not a blind faith. Our faith should be based on the facts that are presented again, the good thing about facts is they can be investigated to see if they're true or not. And so that's what we're going to continue to do each and every week throughout this uh, series is look to see, is there actual evidence for the resurrection? Because if Jesus truly was raised from the dead, then he is God as he said that he is. He has the power over your sin. He has the power over your sickness. He has the power over death. And he is the key to having the abundant life right here and right now and eternal life forever as well. So the question isn't, is the Bible true? The question is, is Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John a historical, reliable account of that day and time? If yes, that has huge implications for our lives, both for the here and now and for the life to come. So until next week, let's pray. Father, we thank you for once again this opportunity to gather together and uh, Lord, I know this is a lot of information, um, and I know that um, you know sometimes these history things can seem a little, little dry. But we need to have this reassurance of our faith that I'm not just believing a, a book of of fairy tales, but this really, really happened. So, Lord, I pray that you would continue to to inspire me and give me the words to share in these uh, next couple weeks as we continue through. And I pray that you would have everybody, whether are here in the room or they're watching online, just to have open hearts and open minds to evaluate all of the testimony first and then like a jury to, to deliberate and say, all right, is it true or is it not? Were these eyewitnesses actually telling the truth or not? And so, Father, I just pray that you would continue to, to speak to each and every one of us, whether it's that we're kicking the tires and, and we're, we're trying to discover if this whole Christianity thing is true, Or if we're somebody we just need to have our faith reinforced, that we've had our doubts of, okay, is the Bible really true or not? And that this series would would help in that way. So Father, again, just uh, help us to continue to do our own investigation and to be strengthened as we start to see week after week after week that the Gospels are true and that Again, that has implications for our lives then of how we live our lives, what we say, what we do, where we go, how we spend our money, uh, how we vacation, where we work, how we work. All those things are all factored into is this a reliable historical account or not? so Lord, I pray that as we discover that it is, that we would give all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength to you, and that Lord, we would truly love our neighbors just as we love ourselves. Thank you, Jesus. That's in your name that we pray. Amen.